Hi, everyone. I am super excited. We're going to be speaking with one of our favorite people today, Diana Fleischman, who, in addition to being a reformed academic and evolutionary psychologist, is the author of the not yet published but upcoming book called How to Train Your Boyfriend. And she's written a ton of other fascinating stuff that you must go down that rabbit hole. Trust us, you'll be very, very entertained. We're going to speak with Diana about a wide range of things. And we also want her to. The uh, Epiraria podcast. Yes, host of the Epiraria podcast. Yes. And we we honestly want her to start by stress testing one of our weird theories. But we also <laughs> want to hear all sorts of other things from her. So Diana, welcome, first and foremost. Thank you. Would you like to know more? So the theory I really want to go over with you is one from our book, The Pragmatist Guide to Sexuality, which is that we are a slave race. And I'll explain what I mean by this. Specifically, the, the majority of the evolutionary pressure put on human-to-human -human social interactions was put on humans who were low within local status hierarchies. First, most humans historically were basically near the bottom of a, a social status hierarchy. Very few humans were near the top of the social status hierarchy. And while men in that position definitely had more surviving offspring, even when they were in that position, there was less pressure on them to behave in certain ways. Like a leader who failed isn't going to get his genes erased as quickly as a, a, a servant or slave who fails, which means that the average human mind is much more optimized around servitude. And this has a few interesting takeaways. One, Ayla, mutual friend of, of, of both of ours, this would explain why even in men, around 40% prefer to take on sub submissive positions in sexuality. But it also may explain the way we relate to things like deity or society writ large, how like a president will say, well, I'm the servant of the people, even though the president is technically the highest level position in society or the head of a company might say, well, I'm the servant of the board. We really have few concepts of non-servitude in our society. So I want to get your take on this as an evolutionary psychologist. So one idea that's very interesting is potentially hunter-gatherer societies were less hierarchical than current societies that have very large hierarchies. I've been reading a lot about male and female dynamics. So men tend to be more forgiving of their friends, and they also have more stable status hierarchies than women do mm. because their status hierarchies are based on more stable characteristics such as strength and prestige over time. So it does make sense for men to, you know, and I was listening to an interesting conversation with Bo Weingart and Jonathan Pallison about, you know, why would a man gain status by carving beautiful sculptures of a man from history who's high in status, you know, these kinds of ideas. So it's possible. Yeah, I do see what you're saying that, yeah, the average man is actually subservient. The average man is monogamous or, or worse. What I'll riff on this with is what I think is even more interesting and an idea is I was talking to Louise Perry and we were talking about like how evolutionarily novel is prostitution. Mm. And she Ooh. said that it was unlikely for women to have been passed around and have sex with multiple men, but it was probably very common in evolutionary history, ancestral history, for women to be sex slaves to a specific person, uh, right? Uh. And so she talks about kind of Stockholm syndrome and women being uniquely 
impressed upon by Stockholm syndrome because it is the adaptive thing to do, not just, you know, because of patrilocality. So women would have been taken away Mm -hmm. uh, on average from their families and given to a a strange man's family for her to adapt to his culture and his language and to his customs would have made sense. But the only way you and your kids are going to survive if you're taken over by a hostile group is through a, a kind of, Pleasant submissiveness, I'll say. <laughs> Accommodation. There's, yeah. yeah. So there's a few riffs I want to take on the on the thing you've said here. One thing that was really interesting is male status hierarchies being more static than female status hierarchies. To add to that, one study that's really interesting is males sort themselves into status hierarchies much faster than women do, because the majority of the way that men sort themselves into status hierarchies is by immediate physical traits like height that they can determine the moment they walk into the room. And the reason for that is because the top man historically was typically the man that could beat up the other men. And that's something that you can quickly observe, which would be partially why the male status hierarchy would be more static. Another thing that you mentioned was wars of conquest and taking women. One really interesting study here that I we talk about in our sexuality book shows that when you have a competition, like a game or, or something like that, that's, I think it's like violent adjacent games, you know, like phys- physical games, and it looks like your side is losing, males bond more, like they feel closer bonds with the people on their team. Whereas women begin to bond less with the people on their team when it looks like their Mm. team is losing, which shows sort of the behavior you're talking about, where it would have really been evolutionarily advantageous if we assume that all the males in a tribe were killed when the tribe was taken over. The final part I want to riff on, sorry if I'm riffing on too many things here, you just Mm -hmm. taking notes while you're talking, some really cool ideas is one of our theories on sexuality we call the polymorphic human female. So for users, you're familiar with polymorphism, but for users, what it is, is when you have a single genetic code that can be expressed in two behavioral and and physical phenotypes. So a locust is a classic example here, where when they get above certain population numbers, they change their physiology and behavior patterns. You know, normally they're a grasshopper, but if you rub like their hind leg with a Q-tip, they'll transform into a locust. But even when like baboons, you see polymorphic behavior patterns above certain population sizes. So what we would argue here is that human females, the more sexual partners they have, their body naturally adapts to this. And we can see them producing Lex, I think it's, you'll correct me on this, oxytocin when they sleep Mm. with partners, which is a forced bonding hormone, which would mean that human females' bodies organically adapt to either bond with the one person they sleep with or bond less with everyone they sleep with because they assume they're in the society where they're being passed around. You can tell me if that sounds crazy or Simone, you want to riff on No, um, no, I'm writing something right now called like, you know, playfully you know, disagreeable sluts versus agreeable prudes. And and so, yeah, the, I mean, this idea is like hookup culture is really fine if you know how to disagree with the with the norm. But if you're agreeable mm. and you're naturally more monogamously inclined as, as the average woman is, then hookup culture is going to be a, a net bad for you. Mm-hmm. I'd be really interested in this study because I've, I've had this idea for a long time. So there's this idea in sort of Christian culture where they tell young people, you're like a piece of tape. The more times you stick to something else, the less sticky you get. And so I have drafted something but not published it basically called I Don't Want to Be Sticky because like when I was (laughs) younger, when I was like 17, I fell in love with a couple people who were really 
low mate value just sounds like mercenary but yeah low mate value guys like one guy was like a like a musician that was unsuccessful another guy worked at my grocery store and and i remember feeling so in love with this one guy who i really had nothing in common with and i fell in love very easily until i got past i don't know like 10 sexual partners Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, we 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 cite this as actually probably being a good thing for most women. You don't want to illogically fall in love with everyone you sleep with, so you're yeah. probably in a lot stronger position. So I, I I really like that. Another thing you mentioned I want to pull on is a concept of bratty sluts, uh, not bratty sluts, <laughs> but bratty subs. Sorry, bratty subs. Bratty subs. So in the kink community, <laughs> there are different ways you can be submissive, and one of these is called the brat. And what I think is going on there, and it's very interesting is what is arousing the woman is the man exerting his dominance over her. So the bratty behavior elicits the the dominance display over and over again in the male that allows her to maximally masturbate that aspect of her sexuality. Yeah, there's the, the resistance to screening idea, right? So like mm-hmm. female elephant, a male will try to mount her and she'll walk backwards like 100 meters or something. He, <laughs> on, he gets to mate. Right. And there's other species where I think it is, is in orcas or some other whale where the male drags the female to shallower water. And so there is an, an in courtship, there's an element of coercive behavior. And so the bratty sub is definitely like a, a test, both psychologically and physically, of the dominance of the male. I, this is why women like to be tied up is because it's a perfect it's, it's a facsimile of being with somebody who's so large and strong and coordinated that they can hold all your limbs immobile, right? Oh, that's interesting. I thought it was a swaddling instinct. Yeah, yeah. So we argue something different about tie-ups, which is one of our spicier takes, is that when people are masturbating instincts that any sort of an instinct, anything that makes them happy, they often misattribute it to sexuality, even when it's not necessarily a sexual instinct, because that's, that's just how we deal with these feelings, like a massage or something like that, right? And so what we argue might be going on with bondage is it might actually be a swaddling instinct Mm -hmm. that hasn't fully turned off from infants. And that that, specifically when you look at like cling wrap fetishes and stuff like that, you know, where they like put something in a bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think even even like rope bondage, but here's where it gets really complicated, right? Because like there is definitely a dominance element in there. And we are pretty sure that like, while the dominance submission thing is a really big element of what turns people on and off, it's also like, you know, you can you can show domination through tying someone up. So like it can both be like comforting from mm-hmm. a swaddling standpoint, but also super big turn on because it is a show of that dominance or it is and a show skill. of that power. Like it's, a- it's very it's a, it takes a lot of skill to do it. I see what you're saying. I, I, I for me, the swaddling instinct thing. Yes, there is a relaxing component to being tied up. I used to live with this guy who was like really into BDSM and he would try out his new gear on me because I was the smallest person he knew. <laughs> so I remember he put me in a straight jacket one time during a party and it was very relaxing because I didn't feel like there was anything. I, people could come over and talk to me or not. It was like one of the most <laughs> relaxing social situations I've ever been in, right? Honestly, and that sounds amazing. You, you, you wouldn't imagine like? that, right? <laughs> Whereas I think if you're, you, I guess you could make the case that for a woman, if you tie her up, the swaddling instinct relaxes her and for a woman has to be relaxed before she gets aroused to some extent. I mean, there's something like that. Although uh, the studies that I did back when I was in graduate school on human sexuality is actually, if you show a woman like a horror film or an 
or thriller, like a man chasing a woman down a dark alleyway, mm. she gets sexually aroused faster huh. after seeing something like that than she does just in a net, in a neutral, relaxed state. So well, doesn't that suggest things- though that like she's that maybe there's some kind of like evolved coping mechanism of like these are signals that I'm about to get raped. Like yes, exactly. let's not cause physical damage, please. That's, that's the, all of the explanations of really repugnant explanations for why do women show enhanced blood flow and even lubrication in the presence of watching pornography, no matter what it is, you can watch two bonobos having sex oh. and a woman in blood flow increase is that it's, what does they call that? Like the damage reduction hypothesis, yeah, 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 which yeah, is really yeah. nasty. But yeah, the idea is that if you're seeing anything sexual going on. It's important to get your vulva ready for what whatever might happen. Yeah, for the um, bonking. Yeah, the, Devendra the Singh, my, my evolutionary psychology mentor when I was in graduate school who died shortly after, he said, he made some joke about like, you know, the best form of foreplay is to chase her around the table or something. <laughs> I love that. Oh my God. Well, here's a fun take that you might like that we had on, on, on these sorts of topics, which is what's actually going on with the arousal ties to dominance and submission systems. And this, we argue, is really more of a case of just evolution being a cheap programmer and reusing a code base it already had. So specifically in mammals, when you have social hierarchies, a very common thing is that mammals will display sexually to show Mm. their position within that dominance hierarchy. And what's really fascinating here is in like spotted hyenas, where the females are the dominant animal. And, and females have pseudo penises in, in spotted hyenas. An erection will be a sign of submission instead mm. of like showing Ooh. yourself to get mounted. And so what's really interesting here is what we argue is probably going on is that humans needed to show their position within their social hierarchy and the system they already had on hand was their arousal system. So biology just like copied the code from that system to instigate a dominance and submission behavior. And pre-code that behavior. And that's why it causes arousal. Not always or necessarily because of these more rape hypotheses. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so there's a lot of species in which males show submission to each other by bending over or even being the receptive animal Mm -hmm. in an anal sex kind of interaction. That to me, I, I wrote a behaviorist account of that once, which is that what's it called? I can't remember the behaviorist term, but there are, you know, like, let's say there's two behaviors. Let's say you have a dog that beats up on your other dog. So the dog can either play with a toy across the room or it can beat up on the other dog. Those behaviors Mm. are like mutually exclusive and like a, a more dominant animal beating you up or having sex with you. Those are mutually exclusive. So what you're incidentally doing, if you bend over and show a submission behavior or let the other animal mount you is you're rewarding, not beating me up. Uh, with, oh, with sex, that's right? a really interesting take. I like that. So that's one interesting thing. But but also, yeah, in terms of dominance, yes, it's it's always better. If you look at all these different animals, there's a very interesting paper, cooperation, and they expand the notion of cooperation past what we would normally think. And they also say, let's say two bucks are sizing each other up and they look at each other's like antler size and one decides to forfeit because the other one has bigger antlers, but a, a, an actual physical altercation is costly for both of them. So actually that is a form of cooperation, even mm. though their interests are actually not, well, their interests are aligned and in that they both don't, they don't, don't want to fight unless it's really necessary to figure out 
who's who's dominant. Yep. So you could also see that in terms of sexuality, like physical altercation is is very costly. And so a sexual altercation is is generally always preferable if you mm -hmm. want to show that you're submissive. And it also has, as I said, the added benefit of rewarding the dominant animal for not beating you up. Yeah, so oh, just, a, just a quick note here for, for listeners, a quick biology lesson. What she described there is called honest signaling. And it's a useful concept in biology that can also be applied to other areas of your life, which are types of signals that you can show people that cannot be easily faked. So like if you were signaling wealth, something like jewelry, which can be rented, is a very easy thing to fake, while something like a house is a very hard thing to fake and a much more honest signal of wealth. But Simone, you haven't talked much. What, do you, what are your thoughts on all this? Sorry, I, I thought you were about to be like, and this is why you should offer sex to your boss at the office so that you can get promoted and make sure that you're not trying to supplant them. Wow. Okay. Yeah, this, is, was... this is moissanite. So this is my my pregnancy ring because it's- Oh, because it, your fingers I, are I swollen, fit, right? I don't fit into, yeah, I'm too swollen to wear my normal one. And this is like a $300 ring or something like that. But a diamond this size, because they're indistinguishable to like the naked eye or whatever, or even to many jewelers would be, I don't know, 10 grand. So yeah, yeah. I, I love I love fake- fake fitness when it comes to jewelry. Also moissanite is more sparkly. So like, I almost feel it's like sparkly. it's more effective signaling. It's, okay. it's, it's gorgeous. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, what I'm really curious about is, you know, there is this, this surprising, and, and this shows up in ALA's data. It shows up in the data that we did abundance of people who are submissive, not just women, which of course, like the majority of, of women are, are submissive, but also men. Well, what, what are other compelling reasons for there being so many submissive men but bottom bottoms also outnumber tops i remember mike bailey having a drink with him several years ago and he was saying that gay men joke that like you go out to a gay bar which gay bars are not as common as they used to be it's like a hundred bottoms for every no. one top no yeah so bottoms are way more no. common i don't know about like versatiles or, or switches i mean there's a variety of other reasons that could be the case though because like females are the default sex if um. homosexuality is the result of some kind of difficulty let's say in the the programming for masculinity then you would expect that you know it's yeah we whatever, default more toward lordosis, female lordosis or like female receptive behavior is much easier to code because it just involves kind of like bending over than yeah. than copulation or topping which is much more complicated and involves a lot more motivation right well it's also fairly risky so you have a female mimicry which you see in a lot of species. And that could be what we're seeing here. Oh, you mean like sneaky copulation? Yeah, sneaky copulation, yeah. Are you okay, guys, so you guys are curse on this podcast. <laughs> we, we, can, we can curse. It's called sneaky fuckers. Yes. <laughs> so essentially what happens in, in some animals for listeners, and this may or may not have relevance to the world today. So some males, especially in highly gender dimorphic species, so like you'll see this in like some crabs where like some males are like three times the size of other crabs. Yeah. Occasionally males will be born the size of a female crab and the big males don't notice them and they will enter these other crab communities sneakily. In other species, you will see males adopt female behavior or even take on gay roles to enter sort of the trust circle of other males and then sleep with the women in, in that animal's harem, I guess you could call it. Yeah, the yeah. sunfish has got three morphs, which is the, the regular male that has the territory that guards his territory, a tiny little male that sneaks in, and then the male that looks just like a female that sneaks in more effectively. And this is, so we had a podcast where we argued that the, the red pill in a way, in the way they're approaching women, creates thoughts. 
I actually, T-H-O-T's, I actually <laughs> believe that in the same way, the extremist feminist community, one of the reasons why whenever you do surveys in that community, you see such high rates of rape is they are essentially bringing in these female mimicry guys who are going to pretend to have this like ultra white knighty perspective on the world. Mm. But in, in animal kingdoms, those are the, the types of males that are most likely to rape or one of the most likely to rape. males. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I did a deep, I, I did, I did work on this 10 years ago on bisexuality and about evolutionary explanations for homosexuality. And I taught human sexuality. I remember a deep dive on this in a lecture and chapter that I read in my twenties. And this guy was talking about how gay men have, you know, very reduced rates of reproduction, obviously compared to straight men. And then it doesn't actually seem like this kind of sneaky fucker strategy. Maybe you're talking about something different, but it doesn't. No, 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 I'm not talking about gay men. I'm, I'm actually oh, yeah. specifically talking about white nighty guys. So these oh, are okay. guys feminist guys. Yeah an extremist, like, feminist perspective, you could say, that, like, no rational guy looking at the world today would adopt to get into these, I guess people would call them, like, hardcore SJW spaces. But it is related. Basically, they're creating an incentive to create sneaky fuckers, essentially. Well, I mean, it's, it's a copulation strategy that is that is premised upon dishonesty. Yeah. I mean, that's how they're getting into these communities by being dishonest about their lived experiences, because that's what you need to be as a guy often to enter these communities. Well, that's that's what I'm saying is the communities create that requirement. Like mm. you have to be sneaky yeah. to get in. So it creates people a real who are being fucker thing. So we'll see. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could also say that these communities like the there's a very advantageous sex ratio and there's a variety yeah. of good good reasons to try to get get into them. Yeah, I'm pretty agnostic about that, given that I'm not in those communities myself. Yeah. <laughs> well, we just I, the... I have loved this episode and I would love to do another episode with you if you are open to that. Yeah, for sure. Yay. Okay. Then we are going to. We'll record it right now. Yeah. Okay. We're going to record it right now. 